Well, good afternoon. Thankful that you've returned to be with us here. Many of you stayed for lunch, but some may have uh, run out and got some lunch and come back. But we're thankful for the opportunity to study together for just a few moments this afternoon. It's been a, a few months, really primarily due to lads to leaders, uh, that we've had our, our teens gone to the teen singing, so it leans a little leaves a little hole up front here that we miss. Hate uh, them being gone, but thankful they have an opportunity to go and uh, fellowship and sing with some other teens from the area. And so I know they were looking forward to that and having a good time, but we certainly miss them when they're gone. But we're glad that you're here, and we're going to pick up again with our one-word study. Uh, we've been doing this now for, I guess, about two years or so, three years, and uh, going through the different, uh, different words. I do have them. I'll go forward one slide, and then I'll go back. But I did put on this list here, just to remind you, it feels like it's been a while since we've had one of these lessons. On the left-hand side is the themes that we've been through. We started off talking about big picture words, um, things like creation, things like uh, thinking about Jesus and God. We talked about Christian character, love, hope, and peace, some things that we were supposed to take in, uh, some things that we were supposed to practice. We talked about last things. We talked about heaven and hell and certain words, the way they're discussed in the Bible. And then we just finished about a, a four-month study of our relationships. If you recall, we started, I believe, with mother finished with father. We talked about elders and deacons in that. What you'll find on the right-hand side is the new list or this next section that we're beginning, beginning to study starting this month. The words are entitled God's Church. And so we're going to talk today about the word church. We're going to talk about fellowship, worship, the idea of kingdom, and the idea of proclaim. And so there's about seven or eight uh, sections in total in this particular study. If you're new to us or to that, then you may recall that this is meant to be a 52-week study, just a yearly study. You could work through 52 words in the year, a weekly study, but we've kind of uh, spread it out just doing one a month, and so that's how far we're about halfway through with that. And as I said, we're going to talk about the word church. A couple of things to begin. I appreciate Don leading the singing, and we always ask you to emphasize, to think about the words that you have been uh, singing and just a moment ago, I thought, I know sometimes some of you who have grown up in the church are familiar with these songs. You know, we sometimes have jokes or funny things that happen where you mix up titles or it sounds funny when you say it. The song that we sang, The Church is One Foundation, has always been one to me, not necessarily humorous per se, but when you say that, it sounds like you're saying the church is one foundation. The church is one foundation. And so that's fine. The church is one foundation. We're talking about the church being one. But when you really sing that song, you have to think about the words because that's not what it is. Of course, church has an apostrophe S on it. So it's the churches belonging to the church. The church is one foundation. And, of course, the first verse says it. The church is one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. That, that's simple enough. But if you're like me, sometimes you just hear that and you kind of your mind kind of goes to what you usually think. But with another reminder that we have to pay attention to the words that we're singing. We're not just trying to make the best melody. We're not just trying to have the best voices, but we're singing to God. How do we praise God? We praise him with our words, with what we can say to him, sing to him. And at times we do encourage one another. And so uh, I hope you were paying attention to that song, but all of them. Appreciate Don taking the time here to, to think about that and to put together some songs for us that talk about the church. Also, by means of introduction here before we get into the the meat of our lesson. Uh, when you hear lessons about the church, there are a lot of different ways those go. Very often in a gospel meeting, there is a lesson on the church and the church belonging to Christ or the importance of the church, and that's fine. And those are great lessons. We're not exactly going to do that in this lesson. Not only that, but I got to thinking, we just spent two weeks talking about the importance of the church in our Wednesday night class. 
We talked about the fact that there is one body one of those weeks. We talked about the fact that Christians are in the body, are in the church. So we've kind of already talked about some of these things. But then I went back even further, and we've actually just spent a whole quarter or more in the church reset book. And so we've talked a lot about the church lately. And so this lesson's not meant to necessarily bring any, you know, kind of new information that's just going to surprise you or shock you out or any new thoughts. But I think it will benefit us to think about some uh, different ways that the word is used in the Bible. So we sometimes talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let's begin in the New Testament this time with thinking about the Greek word that is translated ekklesia. No doubt if you've heard a lesson on the church, you're familiar with this particular phrase. But do you know that it can sometimes refer to some different things? It can be referring to an assembly of people, a casual gathering of people, or even people with a shared belief. Uh, we hold strongly to that word. Again, you probably heard preachers say it, even if you've never studied it. But the ecclesia, the called out. When Christians have assembled to worship, we can then say that the church has assembled. This idea of ecclesia. And it is derived from a term meaning called out. So that's usually why you'll hear preachers say that the church are the called out ones. And we need to remember this term is not always used in a spiritual nature, though. If you have your Bible, look in Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. When we think about this word being a Greek word, well, what does that mean? Well, it tells us that the Greeks used it in their language. It doesn't mean that they were calling out the church every time. Now, the writers of the New Testament, when they're thinking this way, and they're being inspired, don't, don't get me wrong, they're inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these things. This is the word that's used. But in Acts chapter 19, in verse number 39, we see it referring to a legislative assembly in Ephesus. I don't know if your Bible has headings. Mine does, and in Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 21, mine calls this particular section of Scripture the riot at Ephesus. And so if you're familiar with it, Paul is in Ephesus, and he has these teachings that he's doing, and when he does that, and he says things that are controversial, that sometimes strike at people's uh, business, if you will, or how they make money, it causes problems. You see a person named, mentioned there in verse number 24 named Demetrius, a silversmith, who's making money by building shrines or idols, we might say. And so there's this question about gods, little g, plural s, gods, uh, and this idea of Diana down in verse number 28. You see in verse 29 that the whole city it's filled with confusion, and there's this trouble, and they, of course, want to do things to Paul. But as they're doing this, or as this is being discussed, in verse 39, there's the continuation of what's happening, and it says, But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in, a, in the ecclesia, the lawful assembly. Why is that important? Well, it's important because, as always, we have to think about the context. I know you're not reading the Greek New Testament. I'm not either. But if you were to re read through this section, you see that word, you'd see, well, they've got to bring it before the church. No, that's not what they're talking about here. So context still matters. The majority of times, let me go ahead and throw it out there, though. The majority of times in the New Testament, if you see that word or you see assembly or church, it is talking about the, the gathering of body of God's people, the gathered body of God's people. But it does help to think about the context. Of course, as members of the church, we have been called out. And we've been called out of the world. We touched on that this morning in our lesson, right? The idea that we are the called out. We are to be holier than thou. 
Not because we're arrogant or prideful, but because we are supposed to be holy as God is holy. We understand from Scripture, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10 is one place in particular. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, that talks about that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. We are priests, not in the same way as the Old Testament, not born of the tribe of Levi, but we are priests as part of this body, this called out, God's special people. So in that sense, we can refer to ourselves, as we sit here on the screen, as the called out ones who have been called to do what? Well, to serve Christ. Like we said this morning in the lesson, our emphasis is to serve Christ. And so it helps us, though, to think about these words and to think about the way that it's used in the Bible. While we're talking about that, if you have your Bible, go back to Numbers with me for just a moment. Numbers chapter 14. I did not give faith uh, the, the outline or the blanks to fill in. I figured you could just write some of this down. Um, but as we think about uh, these words, we often, as I said, talk about the Greek and the Hebrew. The concept of God's people as an ecclesia extends even back to the Old Testament, though. In fact, again, in the book of Acts, the, the word is used to describe the congregation of Israel in the wilderness during the time of Moses. When the Israelites gathered to listen to Moses, the term often used is congregation. Numbers chapter 14 and verses 5 through 10, Moses and Aaron fall on their face before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. Again, not a Hebrew scholar, but this kahal, if you will, in one pronunciation is the Hebrew word that is used in the Old Testament as assembly or congregation to describe one of these scenes. As you move through the Old Testament forward, though, the word is used, the Jews would continue to assemble by gathering in the synagogues. And when they would do that, they would recount the promises of God. Yet the term begins to take on a new meaning. It's not just a group of people. I mean, right, we could have a rally down here at the park. You know, we could all assemble together and somebody might say, that's an assembly of people. And it certainly is. But as we get to the New Testament, it does take on a, a meaning, a whole new meaning, if you will, when it's used to describe the body of Christians. Uh, there are three primary ways, if you're making notes and you like to jot down, you know, lists, there's three primary ways very quickly uh, that the term church is used in the New Testament. When we kind of go back to the New Testament here for just a moment. Number one, it is the totality of God's people. If you want to, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew 16. We're going to come to that in just a moment in a little bit of a deeper uh, study for just a second. Matthew 16. We usually talk about verse 18, but it's the whole section there. But Matthew chapter 16, beginning about verse 13, going through about verse 20. Now, the word church is used in verse 18, but there are three primary ways that's used. Number one, in Matthew 16, it's the totality of God's people. It's the church. Let me ask you to pause there and think, do you ever take comfort in that? I know some of you have traveled around the world. Uh, some of you have traveled to, you know, our, some of our men and, and even ladies, some people have gone to, you know, places uh, kind of, South America, that kind of idea, you know, on mission trips. And, and so that's interesting. But you know what? It's kind of, kind of interesting, too, that those places are right kind of in the same time zone almost as us, right? Not too far off, maybe by an hour or two. Uh, Hannah and I were blessed uh, when we were around our time at Freed Hardeman to get to go to Romania once on a mission trip. We worked with orphanages. Some of you have been, you know, overseas and that kind of idea. And it's amazing sometimes to stop 
and think in our moment at 1025 on Sunday morning that some people are already through with worship where they are, you know, wherever Sunday might already be passed as we think about the way this earth spins. Some people are going to be later, you know, and that kind of thing. But it's amazing to kind of sometimes stop and take in the fact that churches used to refer to the totality of God's people and almost at any given hour on a Sunday, as we spin here on this ball and we think about it, there are Christians assembled somewhere worshiping God. And it's just amazing to me to kind of take that in as we think about the first way churches use is to describe the totality of God's people. Number two, it is used to describe a, a congregation in an area. So, of course, the Saudi Church of Christ. Um, the reference that the notes that I use gives is Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Well, we finished there this morning, right? That's where our lesson ended this morning with the seven churches of Asia that are listed there. And so sometimes the church at Laodicea that we talked about in Revelation chapter 3, the word church is not meant to be everyone, but it's meant to be a congregation in a specific area. But also it's used in the third place as the local congregation that's meeting for worship. Not just the local congregation in an area, Saudi Daisy or Saudi, but even meeting for worship. If you're jotting down references, you might jot down 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, we think about the idea of Paul in, informing them or encouraging them with what they were supposed to be doing in worship. Uh, that certainly is a part of it. The people who are assembled together as the church in order to worship God. Now, if you had your Bible, I ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 16 for just a few moments. One reminder of the church's nature is found in Matthew 16 verses 13 through 20. And let's think about the whole setting here for just a moment. We often think about the words of Peter and the words of Jesus, and they're important. But where are they when this takes place? Have you ever read the whole section? Verse 13 tells us that they are in Caesarea Philippi. And the setting where Peter makes this great confession, and it is a great confession, drives home the power and authority of Jesus in his church. Caesarea Philippi, this is uh, a one picture. You can kind of make out the way it is here in the mountains. Uh, Caesarea Philippi is located at the base of Mount Hermon. Several Old Testament references indicate that Baal worship took place in this area. And the original name of Caesarea Philippi was uh, Panias after the god Pan. If you've ever heard that, like Peter Pan, Pan, P-A-N. Uh, that's the original name. And one of the caves there was said to be Pan's birthplace. And it says in these notes, but you can actually make it out maybe a little bit there, but there are actually still caves, little niches hewn out of the rock next to the cave that likely held statues at one time. I grabbed one more, and I don't know how much you'll be able to make of this, but this shows possibly an idea. Some of the caves, some of the even temples that might have stood there at one time. Of course, this is just a drawing of it. But according to Josephus, Josephus was one of those church fathers, those early church historians. We touched on them on Wednesday night. But according to Josephus, Herod the Great built a great temple there, again, possibly looking like that, which was constructed of white marble and dedicated to the godhead of Caesar. Herod also, according to tradition, had a summer palace at Caesarea Philippi. And so now let's go back for just a moment and think about Matthew 16. Jesus being in the region of Caesarea Philippi, kind of around maybe something similar to this, although with the temples there. And in the midst of all that, let me go forward one more time. 
in the midst maybe of those very shadows standing right there, that in these shadows of this area that had honored Baal and Pan and Caesar, Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? In the area that contained these temples and even a king's palace, Jesus said, I will build my church. Among all of these things, although it wasn't going to be this great temple or palace in which they were going to worship, but the author of these notes here even reminds us, even from that last picture, that you can travel to this area today and see where the temples would have been. You can examine the remains, let me go back one more time, the remains of Herod's palace. You can go there and see all those things as they stood there at one time, but now they're gone. But the church of Jesus still exists. The church of Christ will not have anything that will prevail against it. And it's in that setting that Jesus talks about this idea of building his church. And it's just kind of amazing to consider. A couple of other things here. The author of these notes shares a couple of illustrations that I thought would be good for us to talk about in just a moment. He says, in the church, we need each other. One of Aesop's fables describes a hungry lion watching three uh, bulls grazing in the meadow. As he gazed at the bulls, he longed to go after them and devour them. He realized that as long as they were standing together, there was no way he could overpower all three bulls together. He settled on a strategy. He would sneak up behind one and start whispering about the others. He continued to do this to each one until they refused to be near each other or even eat next to each other. When they separated, the lion picked them off one by one. The moral is clear. When they were by themselves, they were vulnerable. There is strength in unity. You know, even through all the arguments and debates and discussion about COVID and separating and how long was too long and when we should have come back together. Whether it was a week for a congregation or months, most of us began to understand that that's exactly what was possible the longer that we are apart. Yes, it may be necessary for a time for certain reasons. Yes, if someone was sick and and needs to be away, we might understand that. They cannot be with us for a while. It's kind of been that way for a long time. We've said if you're sick, we don't want you here. You know, you don't want to spread germs and things like that. We also understood through those things that that would be for a short time and then we need to be back together. Aesop's fables, huh? I mean, even hitting on that kind of point because humans understand the need to be together. They may not agree in church, so to speak. They may not believe in God, but they know that they need friends and they need people. We're vulnerable when we're by ourselves. When we have whispers in our ears and we separate, causes problems. There is strength in unity. The author then gives another illustration here, <clears throat> excuse me, from the book Huckleberry Finn. It says, Huck spends some time living with a family named the Grangerfords. They had a feud with a nearby family, the Shepherdsons, though no one could remember exactly why. Though they were feuding, the book says, they all worshiped together. And then this is part of a quotation from the book Huckleberry Finn there. Next Sunday, we all went to church about three mile, everybody a horseback. The men took their guns along, so did Buck, and kept them between their knees or stood them handy against the wall. The shepherdsons done the same. It was pretty ornery preaching, all about brotherly love and such like tiresomeness, but everybody said it was a good sermon. 
And of course, the idea is you are already, some of you smiling, the image of listening to a sermon on brotherly love while keeping your weapon handy is kind of a powerful lesson in and of itself right there, right? It is vital for members of a church family to love one another. As I said, we've emphasized that in our study on Wednesday night. We don't necessarily need to rehash all that, but we do that sometimes, though not physically, Not everybody's got a gun sitting by them in the pew or whatever, but quite often we might come weaponized with weapons in hand, weapons of our words, weapons of hurt, of anger, and that kind of thing, and you'll see it happen. People attacking one another, or not even doing it, but just being ready while the sermon and the songs all deal with the church and with brotherly love. May that not be said about us as we assemble together as the church to encourage one another and to worship God. All right, two other notes here, two passages in the lesson uh, will be yours. The first one is from Joshua chapter 8. Joshua chapter 8. Let's talk about the assembly of Israel again for just a moment. (coughs) Joshua chapter 8. We've been over Joshua recently, but let's talk again about this, what takes place here. The word covenant, and the author here talks about covenant for just a moment. The word covenant is often misunderstood and usually limited unfairly to a promise. Now, there is definitely an element of promise in covenant, right? But it is more precisely an agreement. Uh, in fact, if you want to maybe put, put your finger there in, in Joshua for just a moment, look over at Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. Covenants between people establish this mutual behavior, But however, when God makes a covenant, he is the sole initiator of its establishment and its fulfillment. In Exodus chapter 19 and verse number 8, then all the people, and if you have your Bible open there, you might notice in chapter 20, we're right before the Ten Commandments, right? God is fixing to deliver the Ten Commandments. The children of Israel are at the base of Mount Sinai camped. And in verse 8, all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. The interesting thing about covenants, we usually think of it as a promise. But when it comes to God's covenant or a covenant with God, God is the sole initiator. It's not a mutual thing like we might establish between me and you. Furthermore, one's entrance into it is based upon free choice to be bound by it. That's what takes place in Exodus there. The people answer God and say, we will obey. They tell Moses, and Moses is going to take that back. The law and covenant of Mount Sinai is mediated by Moses to the assembly of Israel. Moses reads the whole law to the assembly of Israel and leaves instruction for others to do so. And in fact, one of the, one of the expectations of the law, written into the law, is the reaffirmation of the law when Israel enters the promised land. This occurred in Joshua chapter 8 at Mount Ebal. We talked about the fall of Ai there in, in Joshua chapter 8, that uh, the people go and they take over the city of Ai after they've been defeated before. But when they do that, and beginning in verse number 30, Joshua renews the covenant. It occurs here and it demonstrates Israel's commitment to the covenant. They build this altar at Mount Ebal. They're going to write the law upon these stones And Joshua reads, notice in verse 35, the whole law to the assembly. 
He reads the whole law to the assembly of Israel, the kahal, that word we talked about a few moments ago, a phrase connected to the relationship between God and Israel, which included men, women, children, and if you notice there at the end of verse 35, even the sojourners or the strangers to hear the word of the law. Israel assembles together on many occasions to renew their covenantal vows to God. And this passage illustrates the principle behind the observance of the Lord's Supper. Let's take this and translate it very quickly over to the New Testament. We assemble together and it reminds us of the covenant with God. God initiated the covenant. He sent his son. But in the partaking of the Lord's Supper, we're not just eating a little piece of bread. We're not just drinking a little bit of grape juice. But we're to to think about Christ's death, to memorialize the gospel, and to establish this covenant renewal every week. And that's what we talked about Wednesday night in our class. One last point here as we think about the assembly of Israel. Let's think about the assembly of Christ. And let me ask you one more time to go back to Matthew chapter 16. Such an important passage when it comes to, uh, when it comes to the church and the establishment of the church. You know, this is, a, this is sort of a defining moment, we might say. It sort of brings this uh, clarity to the action, the decisions, and to the beliefs that are going to take place. In the New Testament narrative of Matthew chapter 16, this represents a defining moment in the lives of the disciples of Jesus. The disciples are asked two questions, both of which are connected to the identity of Jesus. First, Jesus asks there in verse 13, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do men, in verse 13, according to the New King James? Jesus then focuses on the opinion of his disciples, in verse 15. But who do you say that I am? You see, the public opinion had promising opinions, but divided opinions about Jesus. Some say the prophet, some say you're John the baptizer, some say Elijah. But then Peter, Peter speaks up. You know, every gospel account records a confession from the mouth of Peter. But it's Matthew alone that Jesus, in Matthew alone, that Jesus connects Peter's confession about his identity, about who he is. Thou art the Son of God, the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's only Matthew that connects that confession about who Jesus is to the term church. This is Peter's defining confession. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This moment is a springboard to understanding not only the identity of Jesus, but also the very foundation, the rock of what the church represents. How defining of a moment is this? Well, you know, don't you? Because this is even where the Catholics would get the idea of Peter being the first pope. The church is not built upon Peter. We sang it a moment ago. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ. The church is not built upon Peter. Church is built upon that rock of that confession that is made there. You are the Christ, the Son, and the living God. The church Jesus intends to build is laid upon this conviction of his identity, of who he is. It's not just built upon a good man. It's not just built upon anybody. It's built upon Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus promises here in Matthew 16 to establish an assembly that hears his voice because of their conviction that he is the messianic son of God. Think about as we have been emphasizing it now on Wednesday night. We are built upon the word of God, upon Christ. And so as with the Old Testament assembly of God, the kahal, 
The church emerges as the assembly, the ecclesia of Christ, called out to embody his word and to confess the identity of Jesus before the world. That was what the church reset book was about. Do we draw people into our youth program? We're thankful we have youth. Appreciate Bob and others and Jeff that prayed for them today. We're thankful we have them, but that's not what it's about. We're thankful that we have classes. We're thankful that we have programs, but that's not what it's about. If we want to encourage people to be a part of the church, it's about being upon the foundation of Jesus. And even as we thought, even as we sang, excuse me, a few moments ago, the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. That should be what we're striving for. To be a part of the church that is victorious. By the way, it's victorious because the victory has already been won by Christ. But we want to be a part of the church here that can be the part of the church that is at rest. The song that we ended with just a moment ago, For Christ and the Church. Is that our rallying cry? For Christ our dear Redeemer, for Christ the crucified, for the church his blood hath purchased, the church his holy bride. As we conclude this lesson and we think about the church for a few moments, that's what we should want to be a part of. We should want to join the church, not because it has the best youth program or the best food or the best looking people or the most money or anything like that, but because the church is the assembly of Christ, the body of Christ. It's where salvation is found. <coughs> Excuse me, in the sense is that when we are baptized for the remission of our sins, we're added to the church by the Lord. Maybe you're here this afternoon and you need to do that. Or maybe you're here, you've done that in times past, but you've wandered away. There is a blessing and honor and a peace that comes with being a part of the church. And we're thankful you're here in this assembly this afternoon. We want you to be a part of the church, a faithful member of the church. And whether you're not a member this afternoon or you want to come back to be faithful once again, we would love to encourage you, even now as we stand together and as we sing.